morning. I greet you this morning in Jesus' name. How many of you in the last year have received a letter in the mail? Raise your hand. All right. I didn't think there'd be quite as many young people because now it's all texts or emails or something like that. When you receive a letter in the mail, how many of you have received a letter that you go back and you read, read it again or at least read part of it again? Do you do that? Have you done that since you were dating? (laughs) You read part of it, but you read the whole thing first. Because if you were just going to read the end of a letter, it would... It wouldn't be in context. There's an unfortunate situation of a young man who had asked a, a girl to date her and she needed some time to think about it and responded in a letter to him and he read part of the letter and got discouraged quickly, threw the letter out because it was lending itself towards a negative response from her and life went on for a week or two and somehow word got back to him that she was waiting for him he didn't get to the end of the letter and the end of the letter was yes I will date you it's important to read the whole letter and I was reminded of this as I was looking at the sermon this morning turn with me to Galatians We often, or I often, pick a chapter. Chapters and verses are helpful in the Bible, but that's not how it was written. It's important to to know what the entire letter is about so that we can have a context or understand where where he's coming from in the writing. So, the focus of the sermon is going to be on Galatians 6. But to get a perspective, we, don't, we won't read through the whole letter, but the book of Galatians is a letter to the churches at Galatia. It wasn't just a single church. There was several churches that he was writing this letter to. It was, they were new churches. They were relatively young believers and they were apparently all struggling with the same thing because he said unto the churches at Galatia these churches started out strong when Paul came to them presenting the gospel they received it they started out very strong they genuinely believed the gospel in chapter 4 Paul reminds them, he says, when I came to you, I stayed longer than I was planning to, he said, because I had a physical something going on. And I'm guessing it was something with his eyes because he goes on to say in chapter 4, he says, you, you were so receptive of the gospel and you were so appreciative of me coming to you, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. That's how glad you were for the news that I brought you. But now he finds them They've lost that original zeal, that 
unity and that single-mindedness for the gospel they've lost. And he's quite hard on them about this, and he wastes no time in addressing it. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, if you want to flip back a few pages, he, he has his, I call it a typical Paul greeting in the first five verses or so, um, who he is, and just a, a greeting. And then in verse 6, he jumps right in. He says, I marvel that ye, so, that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. So he's pretty hard on them. What would you think if somebody would come to you and, and write you a letter and say, I'm surprised you, you haven't, you've so soon forgotten what I told you. Don't listen to anybody else, only listen to me. That's kind of what he's saying here. He goes on in chapter 2 to defend and explain why he is to be listened to, why he is the only one, and he lays a compelling argument of why the gospel of Jesus is the only way and why he is the one to be teaching it. So it's not that he has an arrogant, outspoken presentation here. But this same disappointment, if, as in, in verse 6, says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you. This same disappointment is expressed several times throughout the entire letter. In chapter 3, if you look at the first words of chapter 3, He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? In chapter 4, I forget which verse it is, he says, I'm afraid that I've wasted my time with you. I've come and I've taught you. I spent time. I poured myself and my energy into teaching you. And now I'm afraid I've wasted my time, he says. But they were gradually being misled by other teachers coming in. They had lost sight of what the gospel is really all about. And they were starting to add requirements to the gospel. That's what these teachers coming in were, were teaching these Galatians extra things that they needed to do in order to be right with God. So let's look at Galatians 5 first. As I read this letter, and I tried to read it as a letter, and it took me quite a while because there are things that I didn't understand. I'd, I'd check it in another version or a commentary to try to get it together in my, in my own mind. But as I read this letter, I find that the problem facing the Galatian church is not an isolated problem. A lot of it I, could, I see in my own life. I see in our church here. We are prone to a lot of the same things. Some of you know uh, building inspectors or DOT officers or immigration officers with their pet pet issues. They have things that they went to school for and they learned and something stood out to them in their teaching or in their schooling and now that is what they look for. 
if you drive a truck and you get pulled over, you kind of know who you want to avoid probably and what he's going to be looking for. There's building inspectors that have certain things that they pick up on, other things that they let go. There's immigration officers that have certain things that they will look for, questions they will ask and their own little things that stand out to them. It's important to them because they know about it or they think they know about it and they want you to know that they know about it. But we are no different really in this. Our growing up years, the culture that we grew up in, the experiences we've had through life, the things we listen to that impress us or the things we hear that turn us off, all of these shape us and we we get these things in our lives that are things that stand out to us and we know about these things and we they jump out at us from other people's lives the early church including the churches of Galatia had this same struggle it was the Jewish Jewish culture against the Galatian culture or the Gentile culture and these churches they had a predicament one side being accused of coming up, making requirements, unnecessary requirements to be right with God. And the other side was being accused of using too much Christian liberty in order to do what they wanted to do. Does that not sound familiar? That problem has chased Christianity right down through the years. There's those two sides and both are... Both have good hearts. Both have have the best of the church in mind. But one side is too tight and one side is too open-minded. And how to get those together is what Paul was looking at here. Galatians 5 verse 14 For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. If I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of... This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I think that's the answer. Very easily said, very hard to do. To walk in the Spirit, he's saying, be careful. These two sides are biting and devouring one another, finding fault with each other. Take heed that ye don't be consumed one of another. Be led by the Spirit. I'm summarizing this in my own thoughts here, and I hope you'll be able to follow me. But I think the key to coming together finding these two sides and coming together is both sides being able to discern what is a genuine concern, what is genuinely a concern based on the Word of God and what is simply a religious irritation based on my own experiences. And there's a difference. But for some reason, I always see it as a genuine concern. Based 
and I find some way to base it off the Word of God when really it's simply a, a religious irritation based on my, or sometimes, a religious irritation based on my experiences, the things I've gone through, the things that have impressed me that I've heard or have turned me off that I've heard or experiences I've seen or been through. All of these shape our perspective. Paul is emphasizing to the churches of Galatia that the result of being led by the Spirit rather than by the law is a love for one another. Galatians 5 verse 25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now turn to Galatians chapter 6. William Booth, General William Booth, is the founder of the Salvation Army. He was unable to make the, or to attend one of their international conventions because of sickness, but he sent a letter or a message or somehow got a message to all of the delegates being at this international convention. The message had one word, and it said, Others, capital letters, Others. One another is an important phrase to all of Christianity. One another. We are told to pray for one another, edify one another, prefer one another, and the list goes on. You could fill in more things that we are to do for one another. And in Galatians 6, Paul gives some very practical advice on how to live. For one another. I don't think the words live for one another are mentioned here. But that's what it is. Living for one another. Let's look at Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. As I read, as I was reading through this letter, I would read it, and then I would switch over to the Amplified Bible to get a, a little more clear and in-depth perspective on what he's saying. So the Amplified says this. Brethren, now think of it as if he's speaking to you. Brethren, if a person is overtaken in misconduct or sin of any sort, you who are spiritual, who are responsive to and controlled by the Spirit, should set him right and restore and reinstate him without any sense of superiority and with all gentleness, keeping an attentive eye on yourself, lest you should be tempted also. Keeping in mind the phrase here, one another. That is the, the theme for the last part of this letter. One another. The first thing that stood out to me in this verse is the word overtaken. If you look at the verse here, it's not specifically written to somebody who, is, who has not accepted Christ and who isn't a Christian. This letter is written to someone who is a brother in Christ who is overtaken in a fault. Someone who has suddenly tripped up and has fallen into sin. And after I wrote that in my notes, someone who has tripped up, I thought, that sounds like I'm making an excuse for a for sin. And you can't make excuses for your sin because you are responsible for your sin. And yet he uses the word overtaken here. 
it, it came up from behind and overtook him. It's a brother or sister in Christ, but it's someone who is overtaken. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. So, another question for you this morning. Which one of you are spiritual? That's what I thought. There are several problems that this verse brings to us, and it was addressed in our Sunday school lesson very well this morning. And these are the problems, and it, I know it affects every one of you because none of you raised your hand. Problem number one, many times we are too proud to admit when we are overtaken in a fault. You don't need to raise your hand on this one, but I know Every one of us has been overtaken in a fault. Think about this. When is the last time someone came to you because you were overtaken in a fault? Just think about that. Problem number one is many times we are too proud to admit that we're overtaken in a fault. The second problem is if we sense someone is overtaken in a fault... We hesitate to go to them because we're afraid of their response and we know we have our own set of problems. So that's the second problem. The third problem is we're afraid to admit that we're spiritual. The bottom line is this. If you are responsive to and controlled by the Holy Spirit, you are a spiritual person. And you are responsible to go to somebody overtaken in a fall. And this is what it, we just, it said it so much better in our Sunday school class this morning. We don't do that. We're afraid of what the response will be and we don't have it all together ourselves anyway, so we'll just let it go until we do, which means you'll always let it go because you won't get it together. You which are spiritual, restore such and one, but then it says, in the spirit of meekness. Gently and without any sense of superiority. What does the spirit of meekness look like in in restoring someone? When you go to someone overtaken in a fault, you have a concern, you go in the spirit of meekness. And one thing... I've been reading a book recently that has emphasized this over and over and over. The spirit of meekness is calmly and quietly approaching a person and then in a spirit of total confidentiality. Confront them when they're overtaken in a fault, but confront them, not everybody else about them. So the question comes, how many people need to know about a fault? And there isn't a black and white answer for that one. But in general, how many people need to know? It depends on the nature and it depends who all it affects. But as soon as you go beyond that circle, you you are no longer in the spirit of meekness because either knowingly or unknowingly, you're you're communicating two things. You're saying, when when you go outside of that circle, you're saying, Look at what this person has done. 
first of all. And secondly, look at what I'm doing about it. That's, there's no way around it. Then he adds, be attentive to your own life so that you don't fall as well. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Verse 2, Bear ye one another's, there's the word again, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again in the Amplified it says, Bear or endure or carry one another's burdens and troublesome moral faults. And in this way fulfill and observe perfectly the law of Christ and complete what is lacking in your obedience to it. Bearing one another's burdens, we often think of, or I often think of, physically or materially helping somebody out, whether it's financially or materially giving of your time, which is part of it. That's part of bearing one another's burdens, but that's not exactly what he's speaking about here. In the context, he's saying help them spiritually, help them bear their burden. We've been called to restore the fallen brother in verse 1 and then help bear their burden. Now, if you were reading ahead of me at all, you're going to see a conflict. Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens. Jump down to verse 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. Which is it? These words, these verses do not contradict. Burden in verse 2 means extremely heavy load, more than one person can handle. Burden in verse 5 gives the implication of a soldier's pack, something one person can handle. Here's an example. If I cheat on my taxes and somebody finds out about it, you, you find out about it. You come to me. I'm overtaken in a fault. You restore me back into the fellowship. Restore me to repentance. Now you help bear my burden by doing this. You hold me accountable. You check up on me. Make sure I'm keeping things straight. You help me reestablish my tarnished name in the community by not bad-mouthing what I've done. You help reestablish my tarnished name. You come alongside me and you encourage me. You give me some instruction that maybe would help me keep things straight. That's how you help. That's bearing one another's burden. Now, how I bear my own burden in this is I accept the humiliation that goes along with this. I am personally responsible to make restitution, to make it right. I, I accept all the legal consequences or discipline within the brotherhood. That is me bearing my own burden. Do you see the difference? One is the burden I have to bear. The other one is the one you can help me. It goes, whatever's above that is things you can help me with. And that's what we're responsible to do is bear one another's burdens. This is fulfilling the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? John 13.34 A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. And I find it interesting he uses the phrase the law of Christ here because if we go back and I know I summarized the first part of this letter very quickly but if you go back he says 
how the law isn't doing anything for your salvation anymore. We're in the new dispensation now. It's the law of Christ. It's different than the law of Moses. I think Paul understood our tendency, and he probably had it too, our tendency to elevate ourselves Because in verse 3 he says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And I again, in the Amplified it says this, For if a person thinks himself to be somebody too important to condescend to shoulder another's load when he is nobody of superiority except in his own estimation, he deceives and deludes and cheats himself. If you think that you're somebody when you're not, you're deceiving yourself. How many of you think that you are somebody? We chuckle at that. But look deep, deep down inside your own life and your own heart. And I don't think any one of you can come up and say that at some time or maybe even now, you aren't elevating yourself above somebody else for some reason. I don't think anybody can do that. We all think we're better than somebody. Let me put it this way. There are some people for whom we will gladly, eagerly drop what we are doing and help them bear a burden. There are other people we will wait and hope someone else will go bear that burden. That makes the point. Why do we do this? What do we use as a gauge that elevates us above other people? What's our gauge? Is it accomplishments? There are most of you here have accomplished things that I have not. Is it our accomplishments? Is it our, what, I don't know, financial? Is it whatever it is? What do we use as this gauge as to who is where? Verse 7 and 8. Paul speaks about sowing and reaping. I'm going to skip over those, but then he finishes this letter with one last instruction regarding one another. In verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. These are the exact same words that Paul used in Second Thessalonians 3.13. In our church here, this body of believers there is enough elected and appointed positions to go around that there aren't going to be many people looking for more things to do within the church in the Charlie Brown comic strip Lucy asked Charlie Brown said why are we here on earth and he said to make others happy 
And she was quiet for a minute and then she said, why are the others here? I come pretty close to thinking that way sometimes. There are many gifts right here in this church. There's the work at the jail. There's kids club, youth sponsors, song leaders, teachers, and that's just a few. Many things that are being done. And often it's the same people doing these things. Which isn't all wrong. People work within their gifts and their interests, which often go hand in hand. And it's good to use our gifts and our interests, but we need to be careful that we don't just use our gifts and our interests or the things we enjoy and call it our gift. Paul tells us not to be weary in well-doing. This may involve stepping outside of what you consider your gift and doing something you don't enjoy. Serving within the church, bearing another's burden, either physically, materially, or especially spiritually bearing another's burden is exhausting work. It's tiring. And I know many of you do that and do it well, but it is tiring. It's exhausting work. There will be times of encouragement. You might wonder if you're the only one that has to work this hard. When you're helping someone, you might wonder, is this doing any good at all? How long do I have to keep this up? Maybe it's someone else's turn. Sometime you may ask, what is the point? I'm not seeing results. Why, why do I bother? The point is that you are following the example of Jesus and I guarantee he felt those same feelings ten times what you feel. The point may be that God has something to teach you more than what you think you have to help this other person with. Someone once gave me this encouraging bit of advice. We are not called as Christians or if you're involved in any kind of ministry at all, you are not called to be successful. You're called to be faithful. This is a page from the Journal of John Wesley and it it reads like this. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's, deacons said get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, Preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there again. Sunday evening, May 12. Preached at St. George's. Kicked out again. Sunday morning, May 19. Preached at St. Somebody Else's. I guess he couldn't remember the name. Deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19. Preached on the street. Kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26. Preached out in a meadow chased out of the meadow when the bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached at a service at the edge of town, was kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, June 2nd, an afternoon service preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came. Be not weary in well-doing. A scientist once conducted an experiment in his laboratory 
From the ceiling, he suspended an iron ball weighing a ton, attaching it to a strong cable. Beside the huge iron ball, he hung a small sphere made of cork, attached to a thread fastened to the ceiling. An electrical mechanism kept the little cork swinging slowly, pendulum-like, against the iron weight. At length, after days of unceasing swinging back and forth on the part of the cork, the iron ball weighing a ton began to swing very gently to and fro in harmony with the little cork ball. Gradually, its motion increased until it was prescribing a wide arc, all because this tiny cork ball had kept persistently knocking against its massive side day in and day out. When you are helping somebody, when you're bearing someone else's burden, you will probably feel like this little cork ball. After Paul tells us not to be weary, he assures us in due season we will reap if we faint not, which brings on another whole long line of questions. When is due season? You may not reap now on earth, but Jesus promised there is a reward. But the danger is clear that we can get weary in bearing someone's burden. We can get weary in the work of the Lord. And when we faint in our work, for whatever reason it is, that work is ended. That's it. I will add this. There are times when bearing another's burdens needs to stop. Fathers and mothers and husbands and wives. There are times when the need or the burden you are helping to bear interferes with other responsibilities. That of our families or other godly commitments. There are times when bearing a burden will need to stop. But we need to be aware and don't allow spiritual fainting to come from our lack of devotion to God. I have two more scriptures I'd like you to turn to in closing that illustrates this point of why not to faint. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's two churches I'd like to look at very quickly. And it shows the difference in what will keep you from fainting and bearing one another's burdens and what will keep you strong. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the first three verses. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ we give thanks to God always for you making mention of you in our prayers now verse 3 remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father Keep your finger there because I want you to come back to that. But go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. The first four verses. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake 
has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Did you see the similarities? These two churches were commended for exactly the same things. The Thessalonian church, if you want to flip back and look, had a work of, verse 3, had a work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. Not just work, labor, and patience, but they had a work of faith, a labor of love, and a patience of hope. And then the Ephesian church in Revelation, it mentions their labor, their work, and their patience. They're missing the motivation behind those things. The church in Ephesus had lost their first love. As you bear one another's burdens and as you do not become weary in well-doing, look and focus. Look at what your motivation is. Why are you doing this? Do you have a work of faith? Do you have a labor of love? Do you have patience of hope? That needs to be the motivation so we don't faint. We don't grow weary in our well-doing. It's possible to work for the Lord but allow the spiritual motivation to die. When the spiritual motivation dies, we will become weary in well-doing. At the end of Malachi 1, we have record of the priests. And in my own words, the priests were complaining about how they didn't feel like doing the work of God anymore and the work that they did do was half-hearted. They were bringing whatever sacrifices they could drag off the street. And God said, am I supposed to accept this? They, had, they were doing the work of the Lord, but they had lost their motivation for it. They had lost their labor of love and their work of faith and their patience of hope. As you continue to bear the burdens of those around you, and as you continue your well-doing, not growing weary in well-doing, do it with a love for the brotherhood. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not, as we have therefore opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer? Our Heavenly